internet, thanks for tuning in to this podcast. If you're enjoying this channel, the best thing you can do is like, subscribe, comment, and share. That's how the channel will grow, and that's how we can get on even bigger and better guests. Before we get started, I've just got a few short messages. First off, the first round of crowdfunding for my book has now come to an end. Thanks to everyone that contributed. But I still have about 12 or 13 spaces left for names in the acknowledgements. So if you want to pre-order the book and get your name in there as part of telling the wonderful story of the GameStop saga, you'll find links to pre-order the book in the description below. Next up, I have a few sponsors for the show today. Your internet browsing data is on show for governments, ISPs, or bad actors to see when you fail to use a VPN to protect yourself. So why not try ExpressVPN, the internet's number one VPN. You can protect your browsing data from your internet provider and prying eyes by going to ExpressVPN today and getting 35% off 12 months of ExpressVPN. Use it for privacy, safety, or just to watch Netflix shows from another part of the world. You'll be stunned at the amount of extra content you can access just by setting your location to somewhere new. Next up, I have a wonderful podcast to tell you about, but no, it's not this one. Rico and the Man is a New Jersey meets California no-holds-barred podcast about the entertainment industry, where former college buddies Rob Tregler and Peter Martino both slaughter and praise Hollywood and the film industry. The two bounce really well off of each other, sliding effortlessly between childish banter and in-depth commentary and analysis. For listeners who love Kenny G, one of the latest episodes, Spider-Man No Way to the Toilet, not only contains one of the funniest and most wide-ranging discussions of the highly anticipated new Spider-Man film, Why Does Doctor Strange Seem So Off in the Trailer? Will Tobey Maguire cameo in the film? and why the sheer number of other superhero films allows filmmakers to be more creative in the modern day. But it also includes music from saxophone legend Kenny G, not to be confused with the hedge fund manager that Twitter was calling for the arrest of. Hashtag Ken Griffin lied. Rico and the Man covers the latest entertainment news while keeping a firm foot in the Hollywood that was. With special guests, best of lists, trivia, and an attempt at comedy, Rico and the Man is the perfect distraction for your pesky priorities. You'll find links for everything in the description below. Anyway, here's the podcast. Is that working? I think we're live. Well, someone can tell me if it's not working. <laughs> But uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I am and I have the pleasure of being here with the lawyer of the apes. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. It's an absolute pleasure to get to chat to you. Um, so uh, do you want to like, before we start, then do you want to give people like an idea of what your background is just so, so they know who you are? Um, yeah. Sure, no problem. So, uh, yeah, so as my name uh, uh, suggests, I am uh, a lawyer. Uh, and since this, this is the internet, uh, I do, I have to say that yes, I am a lawyer in real life. Uh, that is not just a moniker that I'm using on Twitter. I am an actual admitted attorney. Uh, I've been admitted uh, to practice law uh, for now 
I'm getting old uh, <laughs> since 2005. Uh, I had to even think about that. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm on the older side, I guess, of uh, some of the apes in the ape community uh, being a 40 year old, but uh, I guess I'm not a, uh, I guess I'm not a boomer, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, so yeah, I've been practicing law for a while. I've done a lot of litigation work and appellate work over the years. Um, I have not done anything um, in regards to SEC law. Um, the SEC is a very narrow, uh, you know, they're an organization uh, that is, you know, set up to be more of an administrative agency. Um, so those types of cases are usually handled, you know, by administrative um, offices and internally with administrative attorneys. And sometimes that stuff gets taken up to the courts, but not really. That's usually dealt with by the organization internally. Um, so a lot of the stuff that you're seeing now is more uh, in relation to uh, breach of contract actions, antitrust, negligence, and stuff like that, uh, which is in areas of the law that I'm, I have been familiar with. Um, I've done uh, multi-district litigation, uh, which is what is called an MDL, um, which is different than a class action. Those are two different things. People need, you know, get confused with those. Um, the, the MDL that's currently pending in federal court for the short squeeze litigation, that's a, an MDL is a situation basically where the cases are all very similar, but each person suffered an injury that's different. So rather than, and in a class action, usually everybody had a very similar injury. So in a class action, the group would all be under one banner. And then no matter what happens in the case, there would only be one decision. So once it's decided that the case is a winner, then those plaintiffs would all split the money mostly equally. And I, I, and a lot of the times you'll see it where you'll even receive these cards that mail that say, oh, become part of the class action. And, you know, you participated in, a, there was a big one a couple of years back with Live Nation, a ticket uh, company. And um, they had done, they had made, done something erroneous and they had sent a letter out to anybody who ever purchased a ticket through this company. And they said, you can be part of the settlement, just sign this paper and you could be part of it. And a couple of weeks later, they sent me a five dollar voucher. Um, so, and then what it usually happens is there's such a huge class of people that the money gets divided up over so many people that nobody ever actually makes any money except the lawyers. <laughs> uh, but with yeah. uh, but with a multi district litigation, uh, it's completely oh, and if you lose the case, then everybody loses the entire class. But in multi district litigation, it's a little bit different. Each individual, there's what's called bellwether cases. Those are test cases that are done in the very beginning of the litigation process. Now, this is after it, it survives the motions to dismiss and the motions for summary judgment. This is when we're getting, you're really getting far into the litigation at this point. So basically, they create what's called a master summons. So everybody from all across the nations, let's say they were you know, affected by the, the short squeeze, they would submit their, they would, they would get a lawyer, hire a lawyer. And then the lawyer would basically fill out this master summons, no matter what state they're in, and it would all get put into this multi-district litigation that's currently pending in Florida. But the interesting thing is, each individual case is treated on their own. So if one is a loser, then there's a potential for still for you to become a winner. Your case stands on its own. It's common in theme but each case is fact specific. So the MDL uh, model, in my opinion, is the stronger model. 
uh, because then when it even comes time for potential settlement talks, what they do is they create what's called a grid. And the grid basically says, okay, do you fit in box A, B, and C? Yes. Okay, well, you're going to get X amount of dollars. Do you only fit in B and C? Then you get X amount of dollars. Oh, you're only level C. You're going to get. So you're, whereas in the class action, everything is just divided pretty much equally and every, and nobody usually gets a lot of a good amount of money. In the MDL structure, you actually, your case is treated and looked at individually and it's based upon your losses. So if you had lost $5,000, you know, you could try to settle for, you know, $3,000, you know, just to get, just to move the case along. Um, you know, most of these multi-district litigations, they don't go to verdicts. They are, you know, they drag out for years that there's no doubt about that. You know, if this survives the motion to dismiss, this is not going to be, you know, decided within the next year and a half. You're looking at at least at a minimum, I'd say, you know, three to five years. Okay. Um, you know, it, they will drag this out forever. That's the, that's the key to litigation and mass tort. You want to delay it as long as possible. You know, you really see this more in, like I said, the context of uh, negligence. And um, it happens a lot with uh, uh, defective drugs and uh, where, you know, a group of pe pe people took a certain medication. And then because of that medication, they get cancer. And then basically you filed these MDLs. Each one had a different type of cancer. Some, you know, survived. You know, some unfortunately passed away. So at the time of the settlement, you know, the person who passed away may get more than the person who survived. And it just, and it just depends on the type of injury. Um, but again, this is not something that happens overnight. These things take years and years and years to get resolved. And I would imagine that in the context of antitrust, um, it would take just as long, mm. um, you know, unless there's a huge, you know, look, this is getting a lot more media attention in the United States than, you know, than, um, you know, even the mass tort drug cases get, mm. you know, this, there's, you never see too many people clamoring on Twitter about this, but this happens all the time. There's tons of medications that are causing, you know, serious injuries to people, mm. but you rarely hear about it. You hear about it at the end when there's a settlement, maybe you hear, Oh, $5 billion settlement by XYZ drug company. But like, wow, that's interesting. Mm. Um, but, you know, you, you don't this is something you hear every day on, on the Internet. Um, so that might lead to some pressure and that might lead to a faster settlement potentially. But again, you know, most lawyers are going to delay, delay, delay. That's the name of the game, unfortunately. Mm. OK, so, right, uh, so that's my background. Basically, I've, I've done a little bit of everything over my career. And now, uh, you know, I've moved up uh, to the point where I'm. I have a position where I, I don't litigate anymore. Um, I actually decide cases. Uh, so I'm actually, uh, you know, I've, I'm at a, a cross at, at a different point in my career. I don't, I don't litigate anymore. I did it for many years and it was, uh, it was fun. And, uh, now it's, uh, now I have a little bit of an easier, hmm. easier job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not, well, you, you sounds like you've put in the hard work. Um, so, Basically, yeah. So I want to I want to just today go through the the this this lawsuit against um, Citadel and Robin Hood and and sort of get the like a, as good an understanding as I am capable of coaxing from you um, as as possible to try and help my, both myself and other people understand like what this lawsuit is, what it looks like, um, and how it could affect different different things, um, how it could influence this the situation and and what the the likely outcome is. So. Um, 
First off, actually, now that you've you've mentioned the these um, MDL cases, is uh, is it a class action lawsuit that we're looking at here against Citadel? Because that's how I've seen it described. But now I'm I'm not sure if I, that's been poorly uh, poorly worded. Now that you've mentioned that there's like a there's a, a difference between these two 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 types of like um, multi plaintiff cases. Right. So um, in this, uh, what happened was there were two. Uh, and but this was up to the lawyers. They're the ones who decided how to file this. Um, so basically, it was filed. Uh, there are two separate. There are currently two complaints. One is an antitrust complaint, and the antitrust complaint is against Robinhood, Citadel, and all the other brokerages that were involved in the short squeeze uh, litigation. That you know, from what took place in January, mm-hmm. um, uh, in regards to the limitations and the taking away of the buy button. That is that is being that was filed as an MDL. Okay. That is filed as a multi-district litigation, which is the preferable, in my opinion, methodology. The there was another complaint that was filed against just Robinhood for negligence, uh, gross negligence, breach of fiduciary duty, and a number of other counts, and that was filed as a class action. Now that's a litigation strategy that was up to the lawyers. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to second guess their, you know, why they did that. Um, but me as a lawyer, um, I think that the people benefit, the clients benefit the most through MDL litigation, because like I said, you're, it's more case specific and you have a class action is all or nothing. If that, if that main case is dismissed, it's dismissed against everybody. Now, in the MDL, this initial motion to dismiss is to dismiss the initial complaint. And right now, there's only four or five plaintiffs named in that complaint. If they survive this motion to dismiss, then a bunch of other people can then start. They'll have what's called a, you know, a form. It's like a, like a form summons. You want, it'll just be available to download the lawyers, and they'll be able to fill it out, and they'll be able to send it uh, to their clients. Um, so basically the MDL structure is different, like I said, than the short, uh, than the uh, class action structure. Um, but yeah, so there's two. So th- that's the difference. One's MDL and one is, uh, class action. So the one I'm most interested in is the, is the antitrust suit. That's the one that I feel has the, I don't know. I feel like that's more significant in this case, uh, be- just because of what it's alleging. So. Um, do on what grounds have they filed um, an antitrust lawsuit here? Like, what is the what is the basis of their case? Okay, um, so basically, the, it's 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 only one count um, in the in the plaintiff's complaint, and it's a violation of the Sherman Act. So the Sherman Act um, basically says. Uh, the, the legal, I mean, if you read the, the actual Sherman Act itself, it's, you know, this ridiculously uh, worded statute. Um, it basically says, though, in layman's terms, that there's a conspiracy that unreasonably uh, restrains trade. So do you want me to break down like what each of those things mean? Yeah, please. All right. So a conspiracy, that's the first part, right? So what's a conspiracy? Uh, you know, well, the word conspiracy gets thrown around on the internet so much, uh, you know, and it was funny Citadel, uh, was calling all the plaintiff's lawyers, uh, conspiracy theorists. 
<laughs> which made me laugh because you know people on the internet they might be saying wait you know they're calling us conspiracy theorists but they're being alleged to have committed a conspiracy so what's the difference between the two i think the term conspiracy is used so loosely nowadays to describe anybody's opinion you disagree with <laughs> that you know i think when people hear the word conspiracy in the lawsuit there might be some confusion so conspiracy is an actual legal cause of action right and a conspiracy involves an agreement there has to be an agreement right there has to be an agreement between one or more people these people get together and it, mo- it happens most commonly in price fixing situations right so basically two people that own a business get together and they basically say listen i've got an idea we can do this where we can you know fix the prices and eliminate our competitors and what do you think you think we should do it and the other guy says yeah let's do it and then that limits trade that restricts the ability for there to be a free you know free market economics and that is the, the very basic explanation of what a conspiracy is it's an agreement between two people to basically you know screw somebody else for lack of a better word yeah, yeah. uh you know you know but that's that's the layman you know that's not a legal term of art that's that's the layman term i mean that's basically it in a nutshell yeah. um i apologize uh, if your show's pg um but uh no it's uh, not don't worry yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so that's basically what a conspiracy is and that's what they you know are alleging uh as the as they're in their complaint Okay, right. I'm gonna before we go further, I'm just gonna pause you there because like there's some mad thing happening outside. I'm just gonna shut the window here very, very, very quickly. <laughs> oh, sure. No. It's always the way, you know, you'll start a stream and a conversation and there'll have been no noise until you actually begin recording or streaming and then then everyone decides it's party time. <laughs> of course. I was just dealing with the same thing. I, I my my one of my kids like came in here tiptoeing, but the tiptoeing was like blub, 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 thud, 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 thud. It's like, you know, they're trying to be quiet, but they actually uh, wind up being more noisy than they intended. yeah yeah i mean that's that's also the other issue so uh (laughs) so the allegation here that we're discussing in this antitrust suit is that there has been conspiracy to limit and restrict trading so um do you know what the do you know what the legal definition is is here like do you know the what the legal ease is for it like what they're attempting to suggest is ridiculous like what the thing that they're trying to say they definitely didn't do is well, I mean that. I mean that the the legalese is that conspiracy to commit, you know, X, Y, and Z price fixing. I mean that's that's the legalese. The what's the, what's really what's going on here is this. Okay, so here's the the allegations in a nutshell. Right, Robinhood took away the buy button. Right, they said you're not allowed to buy AMC. You're not allowed to buy GME. You're not allowed to buy Cost. You're not allowed to buy a number of ticker symbols. And because, and their allegation is, their defense, I should say, is, well, we had a $3 billion, uh, you know, amount of money that we had to pay. Mm. Uh, we couldn't do it. So we had no choice but to do this. But the plaintiff's allegation is, that's not really what happened. What happened was this. You and Citadel conspired to take money away from retail investors. Okay, so... 
the defense argument is that's not plausible because under the most controlling case, which is Bell Atlantic versus uh, Twombly, that's the leading Supreme Court case. That case basically said, if you're going to allege a conspiracy, you have to show that it's, it was plausible, that there's a plot, that, it, that, your, that your theory of conspiracy is more plausible than their explanation for why they did what they did. So Robin Hood is saying, listen, we didn't do this because of any nefarious scheme. We did this because our backs were against the wall. So this is a plausible explanation for why we did what we did. Plaintiffs say, not so fast. It's not a plausible explanation because, Robin Hood, this is not the first time something like this has ever happened. Companies have short squeezed, you know, there's been short squeezes before, there's been volatility in markets before, and you can't say, oh, well, you know, we're, we didn't, we weren't aware, we didn't have enough money in the accounts, you know, we, you know, that was, that's our bad, you know, we didn't mean for that to happen. Their argument is no, that's not what happened. What happened was Citadel and you got together. This was happening. And Citadel basically said, this is allegation. There's nothing's been proven. Um, Citadel basically said, Robin, listen, we have a ton of short positions. This is killing us. Can you do us a favor? <laughs> you know, yeah. let's take, take away the buy button. Yes, we understand it's going to make you look like you have egg on your face and you're probably going to lose a bunch of customers. But the reality is that as alleged in the complaint, you know, we're paying you million dollars, millions and millions of dollars a year in PFOF. So if you lose us, if we lose all of our money and we go belly up, who's going to pay you? You know, we're your biggest influx of cash. We know you have other, other companies, other, uh, you know, other, other companies that will pay you. But we're the, we're the biggest fish in the pond. We're your golden goose. So if, if you lose us, you're going to lose everything, basically. So that's the allegation that they were all there. There was an agreement and they were all in on it together. And they basically said, listen, you have you scratch my back. I'll scratch yours. If you want things to keep going the way they are, then, you know, you're going to you're going to make this happen. Yeah, so that's basically the yeah the, the, the that's yeah that's it in the nutshell. It's like really well summed up. So there's a few <laughs> things that I want to I want to note here is that um, first of all, to suggest that Robin Hood would be not under pressure for this is is to suggest that there isn't a lot of their revenue coming from payment for order flow. So first off, they had. Um, in 2020, 75 percent of their payment for order flow uh, came from yeah or sorry 75 percent of their revenue came from payment for order flow and uh, 81 percent of their revenue in the first three months to March 2021 came for payment for order flow that's 331 million dollars um, an increase of 91 million from the same period the previous year so it's, this is not an insignificant amount of money that has been um that that they're talking about here you know it's not it's not something that is um inconsequential shall we shall we say to their business model so uh the other thing that i want to know is that so the the allegation that robin hood have made is that they they were forced now because i've listened to the the 
the explanations in the in the hearing and what Vlad Tenev had said to Elon Musk when they did like a, a clubhouse together. So essentially, they got the call in the middle of the night, or they got a, an email at like three three o'clock in the morning, and they said, "Hey, you have to post this extra three billion, um, or you're you know you can't trade. Basically, you're like you're not. We're not going to allow. We're not going to." support your you as a as a broker through our clearinghouse um so the nfcc they're then negotiated down to uh 1.4 billion not 0.7 billion so 700 million dollars um and then they robin hood were like okay we can afford that you know that's not the same size as like the market capitalization of our entire company we can afford to pay that um and they said that they had negotiated uh, with the um, NSCC that said they would uh, decide to restrict the buying of some sh- stocks and shares uh, to reduce the their exposure to massive volatility because that was the reason that the um, the the VAR requirement like by the NSCC was three billion dollars was it was worked out on their formula. Um, and they came in at three billion, and then, then the thing that is 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 really interesting to me is like the key to this case is that, um, the DTCC, the head of the DTCC, has said that they waived all capital. The NSCC had waived all capital requirements from that day through to the end of that week. Um, so I, it seems to me at least like. Someone is lying. <laughs> and um I guess I guess the 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 how would you go about trying to prove this in court? Like how where would you begin if you were if you were the lawyers here um taking charge of this case, what would you be focusing on to try to prove conspiracy to restrict trading? Right. So that's the interesting thing. So you know, this part, remember, the litigation starts by the filing of a summons and complaint, a complaint, right? The complaint is sets forth allegations. Allegations, generally, in a case, when you set forth your allegations, you are setting forth your allegations just based upon, you know, just their allegations. They're literally just statements that are broken down paragraph by paragraph in a complaint that are unsupported. They're just, they are not supported. You don't need any proof at this point in a, uh, in a litigation. You have to be able to just, you know, set forth enough facts and not even facts. They're like I said, they're not always facts. Facts means infers that it's that, that they're actually true statements. These are allegations. So you just have to set forth allegations that there was a conversation between Robin Hood and Citadel, that there was an agreement between the two of them and that agreement limited trade. So the interesting thing is in this case, the defense is arguing and they're making it they're making it seem like it's such a big deal but it's really not it's it's a lot of smoke and mirrors they keep alleging in their motion practice that oh well the plaintiffs in this case had 10,000 pages of documents to review um and you know and even with all those documents their case is very thin but the courts can't look at it from that perspective because in reality when you file a summons and complaint in any action no plaintiff usually has any discovery. There's usually no documents. It's just based on allegations. 
So you don't need to prove anything at this stage. This is a non-proving stage. And the reason why is because, again, like I said, this is a circumstance where they happen to have some documents due to the subpoenas uh, from the government uh, hearings. But the court can say, well, because in this case they had those documents, I have to they, they get a different standard. The standard is still the same as if they had no documents. So they keep harping on that. But that is not um, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't it means nothing. Um, the motion to dismiss, uh, which is what is currently pending uh, in the court on the antitrust. Is what's called a pre answer motion to dismiss. Usually after someone submits a complaint, the other side submits an answer, which is basically they just deny all the allegations in the complaint. Uh, but before you can before you do that, there's uh, a list of like seven uh, ways that you can move to dismiss a case before you get to the answer phase. And one of them is failure to state a cause of action, meaning the court will look at the complaint and all the allegations as true. They will con- they have to look at them as true. There's an assumption that they're true. And even if they're all true not proven, but just an assumption that they're true, Mm -hmm. then is there enough that in the next stage of litigation, they'll be able to prove prove that there there was a conspiracy? So it's a really high standard. It's it's not, uh, to get a case to dismissed is not easy. This is a very difficult part. And the reason why so let me let me just go back and answer your question. So basically, I agree with the, the way they're handling this case. They're, everything is being handled. The way they're doing it right now is the way to do it. They have no other way to do it other than set forth the allegations as they understand them to be. So, you know, they and again, they were fortunate enough to have have some uh, proof uh, through evidence uh, from the hearings. Um, but usually you don't have that. So I think what they're doing right now and their allegations are great. Um, and, you know, in terms of proving the case and what you need to do to establish it, you know, at the next stage in the litigation, at the next stage, then it becomes the onus falls on the plaintiff. The plaintiff is then the one with the hardest part now, because that means you got you have to prove, it, you prove your case. Allegations are one thing. Anyone can set forth allegations. Like I said, they can be unsubstantiated allegations. They're just set forth in a complaint. As long as those allegations meet the requirements of establishing an agreement to restrict trade, which I think they do based upon my reading of the complaint, um, then that's good. You've, you've, you've successfully achieved step one. But then step two, now it's time to prove it. And that's why, th- that's why surviving the motion to dismiss is so important. Because one, after you survive the motion to dismiss, they have to put in their answer. And then after they put in their answer, discovery starts. And what discovery is, is the opportunity for both sides to, and in this case, primarily the plaintiff, the defendant's not going to have really much in the way of discovery requests in this case. Um, but the plaintiffs are going to ask questions. There's, di- there's different types of discovery. There's, um, there's interrogatories, which are basically questions on paper uh, that are submitted to the other side that they have to answer. There's uh, documentary evidence, which would be requesting, you know, emails, internal files, you know, et cetera, and so forth. And then there's uh, depositions. 
which are oral testimony. So you bring in Ken Griffin, you bring in Vlad, you bring in the higher ups and the executives in all these companies, and you get to conduct and ask them questions. And that's how you prove your case. Nothing can be proven until the discovery stage. It's you can't just grab, you can't get proof out of thin air. Um, so that's why it's so important for them to survive this motion. If they survive this motion, then things are going to get really interesting. Now, that's not to say that, <laughs> again, the key in litigation is to delay, right? Delay, delay, delay. That's the key. So you file the motion to dismiss. All right, you lost the motion to dismiss. All right, well, what are you going to do now? You're going to appeal the motion to dismiss. <laughs> Either side, right? Then the question is, does the court stay discovery? Which means discovery won't happen until after the appeal is decided. That's a question that the judge would have, will have to decide. And it depends on which judge you get. You never know what, what you're going to get with a judge. Some will stay discovery pending appeal. Some won't stay discovery pending appeal. Then let's say discovery moves forward. All right. They submit the discovery requests. Guess what the defendant's going to do? They're going to object to all the discovery requests and they're going to file a motion to say, no, we're not answering these questions. <laughs> You're on a fishing expedition. Mm. So it'll, it can go. That's right. It can drag on and on for months. So think about it. This was filed back in April, right? Mm -hmm. We're in October. Yeah. The motion to dismiss was just fully submitted. Right. And that's going to be about 60 to 90 days. So we're already going to be pushing into the holidays. Then once the holidays start, you know, they're going to file the appeal. Either side's going to file an appeal, no matter what. Um, so, and then you got to wait for a decision on the appeal. And that's going to take at least six months to a year. Uh, you know, and then the question is, you know, then the discovery motion. So that's right. So listen, this litigation will go on for years, years, years. This is going to take minimum three to five years. You know, it's that's just the nature of the the justice system. It's yeah. slow, yeah. And not only slow, but the lawyers know how to, you know, drag these things out. You know, you yeah. file your motion, yeah. then you ask for an extension on time to put more stuff in, and then everything. Every little, every thirty days, you know, it doesn't seem like much in the in the short term, but if you add thirty days over the course of the you know a year and a half. You're extending it in almost a whole year <laughs> just from those requests for extensions. Mm, yeah. um, so, you know, th that's all part of the litigation strategy. Um, so that's why, you know, this thing will go on for a long time. Surviving the motion to dismiss is great. And that'll get you get your foot in the door. But once your foot's in the door, it's going to take a while to get your leg in. <laughs> okay. So there's a, I just want to kind of like go over and, and summarize just a couple of things you've said and, and like clarify a few things that I just want to make sure I've got right here. Um, so the process that we're looking at is like they have to, um, so we've got the, this is the motion to dismiss. So we're going to decide if that's happening or not. Then there's potentially or quite probably in your mind going to be an appeal to that motion to dismiss if it's successful or not. Um, although you seem to think that it probably shouldn't be successful because all it is is allegations at this stage. Any evidence that they have is out of the norm. Um, it's not. It, it's not. It's not usual to have evidence presented at this point, even though they have. Uh, I guess is is that is that like a fair assessment? Of what, what you meant on that side of things? 
No, no. Well, no, I mean, I think it favors the plaintiffs, the plaintiffs. This member, this type of at this point in the litigation, the it's everything's looked at in the light most favorable to the plaintiffs. Yeah. So the defendants have to really show that there's that n- not that the, remember the allegations are assumed to be true. So they have to argue that even though they are true, they they still don't establish the elements of a conspiracy. Okay. So then So the defendant if the defendant loses, right? That means the case can go forward. If the defendant wins, that means the case can't go forward. Okay. Now no matter what happens, no matter which side wins, some they're going to appeal. Okay. So right. So then we have appeal and then we will have the answer to the lawsuit at which point um you can move on to discovery. Um, and they can start requesting documents and summoning people in for depositions. So, in in when we get to when we get to that point to to discovery, um, when they when you when they request documents, is it uh, do they have to know exactly which documents they're looking for, and do they have like any legal power to compel? citadel or robin hood or, or whoever it is that they're requesting documents for to provide those documents or is it like a discretionary thing so the standard uh for discovery uh is material and necessary so the documentation that you're asking for has to be material and necessary to prove your case so if they said for example uh we need to see the emails uh, from, you know, Robin Hood and Citadel, uh, between the dates of, you know, January 1st and, you know, January 31st, you know, to establish a conspiracy mm. that I would argue would be material and necessary. But let's say just as an example to show you what wouldn't be material and necessary, what would be deemed what uh, the other side would call a fishing ex- expedition. We want to see the emails for the last year and a half you know, prior year and a half from mm-hmm. all emails from 2019 to 2021. Now they, the judge might say, well, that's too broad of a brush, mm-hmm. too broad of a stroke. You don't need, you don't need emails going back two years. You're going on a fishing expedition. You're trying to find more than you need. So, it's so it, again, I, you, yeah, it's, it's discretionary. Like you said, uh, Josh, that, that, that's, that's true. It's, it's ultimately it'll be up to the judge. I mean, look, there's case law, you know, that the judge and the other and the party and the attorneys will cite to, to to support why they believe they're entitled to X, Y, Z discovery. But again, I, you know, in this type of case, you know, the, the discovery is going to be substantial. You know, obviously it's going to be at this point, they only have 10,000 pages <clears throat> and a note about discovery. Um, you know, they keep saying, oh, 10,000 pages of discovery, 10,000 pages of discovery. The reality is, <clears throat> when you get served with discovery paper, discovery, when they, they'll drop, I don't know if you ever seen it maybe in movies, but there's these scenes where there's these mass litigation. And then there's a scene where like they're loading trucks with documents, yeah. you know, uh, bins and bins and bins. <clears throat> and that's done par- partially on purpose because it's like, okay, here's all the discovery. Good luck finding a needle in a haystack. You know, they want to frustrate you or make you, or have you miss something. Think about it. If they, out of 100,000 pages, maybe only five of those pages actually have the smoking gun or the document that you really need, but they're going to make you work for it. You know, think about it. Think about what they, they had in their complaint. You know, they said they went through 10,000 pages of documents, but how many of those actual pages were in the complaint? 
that established, you know, the possibility of there being an agreement. There was like three pieces of paper. And I'm sure they were stuck, you know, way deep in the middle somewhere. <laughs> you know, they're not handing it to you in sequential order, you know. <laughs> Definitely not. Oh. So I mean, so I'm I'm curious actually, just just on the on the subject of emails, um uh, say they requested that 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 uh, they said, right, okay, we want all the emails between the first of January uh twenty twenty one and the thirty first of January twenty twenty one. And Citadel were like well, we don't have them anymore. Um, is there is there like any precedent to uh, I don't know seize computers or is there like a way to compel them to hand over whatever they might have? Like like do they have like could they have just like burned the servers and and deleted the emails and like would that be enough to protect them at this point? Like did, would they will they just like get away with it like hillary style (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean look josh i mean uh, you know not to not to not to use the word conspiracy uh (laughs) in the in the uh, in the other sense uh but yeah i mean look there's always there's always potential for shenanigans i mean uh (laughs) <laughs> for for that to happen. Um, but then, you know, but, but if you get into all that type of stuff where there's a possibility that, you know, did they scrub the servers? Did they, you know, delete the emails? Okay, so then there's a couple of things that can be argued under that, right? Um, there's what's called an adverse inference. So that basically says, well, you know, the emails don't exist anymore. So the court can take what's called an adverse inference, which means, well, we can infer that, the fact that those emails don't exist anymore, uh, that there's something adverse and there was a reason why those emails don't exist anymore. Now that doesn't, that that's not a strong, you know, adverse inferences aren't really that strong because it's still based on a lot of um, speculation, obviously, and that's not going to win you a case. Um, I don't look historically, when you look at uh, big cases, you know, you rarely hear situations like the Hillary situation where, you know, parties don't come forward with evidence and, you know, they try to hide it or obstruct, you know, justice or anything like that. I mean, that's, that, you know, that, that, that's, that's like high government, you know, conspiracy, you know, type of stuff. I don't think that happens on a daily basis. I'm sure people will disagree with me on that and say that it happens all the time. Judges are in people's pockets. In my experience, I haven't seen that. I just haven't seen it. So I'm not going to say that something is true just, you know, because that's what uh, that's what people think. I mean, I've been doing this professionally for a long time and I've never felt that any decision against me was made because, you know, someone was in somebody's pocket. Uh, that's just not something that I've seen um, in practice. Okay. So um, I'm curious as to whether you're aware of any like legal precedent or or like cases upon which we can we can look back in this sort of like antitrust case where like conspiracy to um, fix prices has been alleged. Like, is there is this like a, a brand new sort of thing um, in terms of like what has been taken to court before? Like, obviously, there's 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 like allegations that fly around that that you know hedge funds are manipulating prices all the time, but is there times when these sorts of firms have been taken to court in in the past over things like this no this is a very uh, particular set of facts um you know this is not you know this is uh unprecedented and it's unprecedented to this to the effect that no brokerage has ever fully taken away the buy button from 
retail investors before. There's no precedent for it. There's so basically so that when there's no precedent, right? This is what would be considered or called a case of first impression, right? But it, and it's really not because conspiracy isn't new, right? Conspiracy cases exist for the last you know fifty years or more, right? There's always been people conspiring against other people to you know get money to take money out of, out of people's hands. Yeah. Um, so there's no so from a from the legal perspective of conspiracy, this is not a case of first impression. But from the factual aspect of the case, it's a it's first impression because this has never been done before. You know, everyone keeps using the word unprecedented, and that's true. This is unprecedented. So basically, when you have that situation where it's unprecedented, you know, you have to you know use analogies, right? You have to find cases that are analogous you know, to this. And there's tons of them, you know, I'm not going to get into them there because they're, they're so filled with like, you know, over the top legalese that, you know, your head would explode. I don't even like reading them, you know, <laughs> you know, constitutional law cases are, it's the class in law school that nobody wanted to take because it's just so the decisions are like over a hundred pages long. Uh, they're, 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 they're dry as can be. And, you know, they're just, and they're so dense, uh, you know, that it really requires a level of focus that, you know, you really, it's hard to summarize. So that's why I try to just say, listen, there's case law. There's case law always, for the most part, supporting both sides to an argument, right? That's mm -hmm. the legal system. Yeah. The law says X, Y, and Z, right? Basically, this is how they teach you in law school, how to figure out how cases are decided, right? It's called, they call it the IRAC system. It's issue, rule, application, conclusion. So basically that's for the rest of a lawyer's life. That's basically in a nutshell, what you try to do. What's the issue? Okay. The issue is there is a conspiracy between Robin Hood and Citadel uh, to take money out of the hands of investors by taking away the buy button. So the price of the stock can go down. So Citadel can cover their short positions, right? But, you know, with not cover, but so, so Citadel won't get burned by their short positions. All right. So that's the issue. The rule is, in order to prove a conspiracy, you have to show X, Y, Z. The application of the rule. Based on these facts, we cite to this case, this case, and this case. We cite to Twombly. We cite to um, various other cases that are out there from the highest courts possible. Remember, the higher level court, the more required the, case, the courts are to follow it, right? So there's two different types of case law. There's case law that's... Um, from the higher courts, which the courts have to follow, right? Yeah. And then there's what's called, there's lower court cases, and those are those cannot be taken at full value. They're called persuasive. So the, there's no mandatory requirement that they're followed by the, by the courts. They're just persuasive. So, um, and then once you apply those laws, then they come to a conclusion. And remember, the person who comes to the conclusion in this case is the judge. Yeah. So it really just depends on, how does how did these other cases that are analogous to this set of facts fall, you know, in favor of who? And that's really what it boils down to. But there's so much, there's so many levels, you know, even after, like I said, after discovery, while discovery is going on, there's still another layer of motion practice that gets done. So, I mean, they just, it, the litigation process is so, takes a really long time to get to the actual trial part which most of the time never happens because while all this is going on, all this back and forth with the motions and the arguments, 
someone behind the scenes is trying to settle this thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, your, your, your talk about constitutional law, um, classes there just like sent me way back to, uh, to when I was in, in, in university and we were studying European law and we had to do t- cases like factor tame and, Oh my dear goodness! It was just reams and reams and reams of pages, and then mm-hmm. the the year after I finished, one third of my degree was wiped out by Brexit. I don't need to understand European law anymore. <laughs> 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 but so I yeah, I sympathise with with people who with not wanting to go deep into the 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 yeah the complexities of of uh, constitutional law cases. That's uh, that's never really where you want to. Uh, go if you want to keep things at least brief or entertaining. Uh, yeah, well, that's the thing with this case. I mean, this case is, you know, all the cases are most are from our are, are law cases. These are all Supreme Court cases that they're relying upon. You know, they're all the, the, the attorneys are citing to various higher court cases, uh, you know, at the Supreme Court level. And that's the interesting thing, too, Josh, about the appeal to go back to that for one second. Um, remember, so this is right now in the lower court, right? This is the lower district court where the case is filed. Okay, so then that gets appealed to the the next level, right? The United States Court of Appeals, right? Then after that, that's not the last appeal. They can still appeal yet again. Remember, you have multiple levels of appeals. So you have, after that, then you can ask for certiorari to the Supreme Court. And then if cert is granted, then you got to wait for the Supreme Court to make a decision. So when I said that this case can be appealed, this case, can, that appeal can think about it. The first the first level of, of appeal alone can take a year. Then the next level of appeal can take another year. And then for it to get to the Supreme Court, you know, forget about it. You know, these things don't happen overnight. So that's the other thing. I mean, that all goes back to the whole delay thing. Yeah, yeah, it's... um. It's obviously like legal legal cases take a long time. Um, so anyone who's uh, thinking this is going to be a quick wrap up um, is uh, <laughs> yeah mistaken. Like the the court case is not going to trigger the MOAS people. Um, the the yeah compu- registering with computer share is far more likely to do that. Um, but the so what did what are Citadel have? What was the argument, or that Citadel and Robin Hood have come back to come back with in this motion to dismiss? Like, what is the case they're making? Are they just, they are, they, they're literally just saying this is ridiculous. Go away. You need more evidence. Is that like their argument, basically? And um, would you ever expect them to not do that if they're, you know, I'm sure they have like Mr. Burns style, like their twelve high paid lawyers in the in the the cupboard ready to come out and you know jump on Lionel Hutz whenever he comes with Homer. But like, is there ever a case in which they'll just say no, no, no? Let's just move along to to the case, and then we'll beat them in court. Or are they always just trying to frustrate the the process? No, I mean, no, no, no. In general litigation practice, this is standard. This is standard. This is standard protocol. You know, the complaint gets filed. You file the motion to dismiss. If you're a lawyer and you don't file a motion to dismiss for failure to state a cause of action, you're committing malpractice. I mean, that's that's I mean, look, at the end of the day, yes, are the lawyers doing it so they get paid? Of course, obviously. But, uh, you know, they got to get their billables. That's fine. But uh, the flip side of that is, you know, if you if you advise your client, you know, you should you have to do this motion to dismiss and they say no. Okay, well, that's on them. At least, you know, if you're a lawyer and you don't file the motion to dismiss and your client said and it was because your client said, no, I don't want to spend the money. Well, that's their that's their that's a foolish move on their part. You should always try to get the case dismissed. 
And most people do. You rarely see a situation where people just, you know, cut to the discovery phase. And the reason for that is the delay, right? Delay the case as much as possible, because ultimately, if you lose that motion and dismiss, yes, you're going to file an appeal. But in the back of your mind, right off the rip, the next thing in your mind is, how are we going to settle this thing? I mean, that's just the reality. That's it. One, surviving the motion to dismiss is great. But in re- at the end of the day, the lawyers on both sides are going to try to settle this thing. It's, it's unreasonable to think that they're going to take this all the way. And then that's just not practical. It's, it's, it's just, it, it's not, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. It could, I mean, it could happen. I mean, it's, but if you think about it in terms of litigation and prosecution, right, whether it's criminal law or civil law, 95% of cases are resolved prior to trial, either in a plea bargain or in a settlement. So, you know, the, the, the system is not set up for these cases to go all the way. People don't want to spend that much money. Yeah. Um, so and that's the that system couldn't handle that many cases, really. Court system can't handle what they have now. Yeah. You know, so I mean, the backlogs are ridiculous. Um, and and after COVID and do- and even now during still COVID, uh, with everything, you know, the they're getting their feet back underneath them. Uh, but there was a year where they didn't do jury trials. I mean, and and at that point, that was a full delay for a year. Nobody did anything. Everyone sat on their hands and was like, well. No court system. I don't got to do anything. We'll just, we'll wait it out. You know, if you're a defendant, you're not going to settle. I'll sit on my money for another year. You know, that's just the thing. So, okay. So back back to what you had said about, you know, what their argument is. So remember, so conspiracy, right? How do you prove it? So at this point, they don't have to prove anything. That's the important thing. No proving has to be established. You don't have to prove anything right now. You just have to allege enough facts that, in the next stage, you will be, you'll then have to prove it. So they're saying that at this stage, no, you don't even, you have not set forth enough facts for this to be true, even assuming it is true. So there's two different types of conspiracy. There's direct evidence, right? There's a direct evidence case. That means there's enough proof at the pleading stage that there was an actual conversation between the parties and an agreement right? That's called per se conspiracy. Then there's a second type. That's the circumstantial case. And circumstantial means you don't have any direct evidence. There's, you, there's a bunch of other evidence. And when you look at that evidence in totality, it could mean that there was a possibility of an agreement between the parties. So they're saying not only there's no, is there no direct evidence, but there's also no circumstantial evidence in the complaint, which is complete nonsense. There is direct evidence. There's emails and correspondence between Citadel and Robinhood. Now, their argument to that is, yes, there were conversations, but the conversations that we had have a plausible explanation. And the plausible explanation isn't that we were conspiring with each other. The plausible explanation is that this is regular, ordinary cost of business. There was an external stimuli, the $3 billion owed, that required these conversations to take place. And because of that, that's what we did what we did. Their other interesting argument is that, well, 
you're saying that Robinhood completely took away the buy button. But your allegation in your complaint is that we not only conspired with Robinhood, but we also conspired with all these other brokerages. Remember, they didn't only name Robinhood. They yeah. named Robinhood, E-Trade, Webull, mm-hmm. and a bunch of other brokerages. Stay- and they, yeah. their Stay- argument Stay- is, well. right, their argument is for that because they did that, their argument, oh, and the other thing is they had filed it against a, a number of other brokerages as well, and they already uh, cut them loose. They they released them from the lawsuit, the plaintiffs. Okay. Um, Do you think that, well, so, is that, is that just for ease of go of just like, like is, is it is it because it's easier to prove this one specific thing rather than go so broad based they must have not had enough um even allegations against the other companies to and they probably said to themselves well these are probably not going to survive a motion to dismiss and maybe it's going to confuse things further so maybe they discovered them for that reason. Okay. That's a, that was a legal strategy decision. Uh, and you know, that would be my guess. Um, but their argument is, well, you're saying that there was a conspiracy that, you know, we basically told, we told all these brokerages to do, to stop, you know, put limits. Right. But they're saying, if that's true, wouldn't the limits have all been the same? Why wouldn't, uh, why wouldn't if we wanted to really, you know, survive this, wouldn't we have told all the brokerages, listen, we want you to take away the buy button. But not all of them did that. Only Robinhood took away the buy button. Right. E-Trade did some limitations on trading and all the, and every brokerage did something different. So their argument is, well, everybody did something different. So we therefore there can't be a conspiracy. They're saying it has to be identical, but the case law actually doesn't say identical. It says substantially similar. So basically, look, okay, listen, we're all going to get together and have a conversation. This is what we want you to do. Robin, it says, listen, you got it, boss. I'm going to do it. You know, <laughs> you know, you're my, you're, you're, you're my, you're, you're my, you're my payday. You know, yeah. I'm going to do it. Yeah. You know, you're, yeah. you're, you know, you're 60% of my, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your dad, right? Yeah, that's it. You know, I'm gonna. You know, the allegation is, you know, you're, that's you're my you're you're my payday. So you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna do I'm gonna do it all for you. I'm taking away that buy button. E Trade says, listen, yeah, you guys are good for us, you know, but we're not doing that. We're not taking away the buy button. We'll we'll do a little bit of a limitation, a couple of days, you know, whatever. You know, so the argument for the plaintiff side is, listen, they don't have to all be the same. They all did a little bit of something to participate. They all did their part at the behest of Citadel. Hmm. So that's really, you know, what the argument is. They're saying one side says that it has to be identical to show conspiracy and an agreement. Plaintiffs are saying, no, it doesn't have to be identical. It just has to be substantial. So that's on the direct, on direct. So direct case, they're saying, look, this is clear as day. This is it. There was an agreement. We approved through emails. And even if we didn't have proof through emails, because we don't need proof through emails, we just have to allege at this point that there was the possibility of an agreement between the parties. And remember, the key word is plausibility. Twombly, uh, Bell Lentz versus Twombly, that case where a motion to dismiss was denied, I'm sorry, motion to dismiss was granted against the plaintiffs. They said that there was no plausibility 
there was the, the more logical, plausible explanation was that they did it for business reasons as opposed to conspiratorial reasons. Mm. So that's really what it's going to come down to. Will the court find that which whose argument is more plausible? The we had no choice because of the 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 money we needed to come up with, or is the more plausible the agreement between the parties? Mm. That's really what it'll boil down to. What is your sense? Just just like from a like a purely sort of yeah from a legal standpoint, like take take your heart out of it for a second because I sometimes I have to try and do that when I talk when I'm talking about this sort of stuff because like sometimes I'll be talking to somebody and be like when the moas happens and I'm like I can't say when to everyone not everyone's that bought into this idea do you, <laughs> so like what do you think do you think they have a case do you think this is like plausible based on what they're presenting. Yeah. I mean, look, any type of case at this point is, you know, like I said, it's it's looked at in the light most favorable to the plaintiff. Uh, but if you look at the the case law, you, you know, you would think the other you would think otherwise. Right. You would think that there would be a lot of there, look, obviously, there's more victories than there are defeats at the motion to dismiss stage. Um, so they're really hard to predict. Um, but I think if you. If based on what they have in their complaint right now, I really do believe that there is some level of direct evidence. I think that they do have a direct evidence case. I think they were lucky in that regard to be able to establish that through some of the documentation, even though they didn't need it. Um, but again, you're talking about a subjective, right? opinion because it's based on it's based on law yes but it's also based on facts and everyone interprets facts differently right and the judge is the fact finder so it depends so for me my that de my definition of what's plausible is different than another person's definition of what's plausible right so if you look if you look at the way they paint the picture the defense paints it as you know we had no choice but if you really dig deep into the evidence is it true that they didn't have a choice? Because in reality, they negotiated it down to 1.3 billion, right? There wasn't 3 billion. They had the money mm. at that point. There was no concern about covering it, right? They, that's the allegation. Mm. They, they could have they could have kept going forward. Yeah. I think, uh, I think just, and, just for posterity, like I'm pretty sure Vlad said that they negotiated down to 700 million, actually even further from there. Right. And yes, well, that's even that makes it even stronger of a case. Right. So they negotiated it down. They had the money. And 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 even and since they had the money, then, OK, if you took the buy button away for one or two days, OK, maybe that's plausible. But they took the buy button away for a long time. This was not something that lasted a few days. This lasted a long time. So the plausibility, you know, for me, goes out the window the longer it took. You know what I mean? It almost seems like, okay, yeah, look, can things go wrong? Absolutely. You know, will there mis will mistakes be made? Yes. Will there be a need for pullbacks based on, look, their terms of service say they don't guarantee uninterrupted service, right? Yeah. That's a whole other issue. That's on the negligence case. Uh, but, um, but again, you're talking about a situation where this was dragged on for a really long time. The other brokerages, you know, allowed people to buy the stock much quicker than Robinhood. So the question is, 
again, that goes back to the other argument. You know, why did Robin Hood do this longer than everybody else? Their argument would be we had no choice. And then the other side's argument is no, that's not what happened. The other players did their part and they were done with it as far as they were concerned. But you kept it going because you had to keep, you know, feeding your boss. And that's what their allegation, that's what their allegations, you know, there's no, again, at this stage in the process, there's nothing that needs to be quote unquote proven. You just need to set forth enough allegations to meet the, that, that a judge might believe you'll be able to meet the elements. Um, but I think that's where it's going to come down to. The judge is either going to say hey, your idea, you you guys are wearing tinfoil hats. You know, this is, this was not, this is not a plausible argument. The more plausible argument is, listen, Robin Hood had its back against the wall. They had no choice in the matter and they pulled the buy button and it was within their rights. And if there's any issue with that, take it up with the SEC. Yeah. That's one way it could go, right? The other way it can go is the judge says, yes, on its face, the defense makes an argument that seems to present a plausible explanation. But if you dig beneath the surface and we can do a little more discovery, I think we'll be able to find that there might be something here. So that's basically the two possibilities. I think, honestly, I think, I, I think for this case, uh, it, there's a strong possibility that, you know, there's enough, uh, there to get to the next, um, stage in the litigation. I, you know, I, I think there is. Okay. So, um, I, am rapidly running out of time here. Unfortunately, uh, I have to go and finish more filming for the documentary I'm appearing in, um, about, about GameStop and short selling. Uh, so it is a worthy cause for which I'm going to abandon you. But um, there are just a couple of rapid fire questions, basically, that I wanted to to put to you. Um, so first up, uh, some of these are to do with the case, some are not. <laughs> so yeah. has Kenny committed perjury in uh, in Congress when he was testifying and saying that there was no communication um, and there was no sort of collusion between them. Do you do you get the sense that that's perjury, or is that just like people being hyperbolic? Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Okay, that's a solid answer. <laughs> do you see the possibility that um, more leaks will come from inside Citadel um, or inside Robin Hood? Or do you think we've seen what leaks that we might? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I know we're short on time, so I'm not going to go crazy on this, but um, one of the word that's a word that drives me crazy because um, I know a lot of the documents that were floating around on Twitter were called leaks, but every one of those documents was part of the case file. So they really weren't leaked documents. I think that's important. Okay. Um, so, that, okay. so yeah. So it's not like they've yeah. yeah it's, they've not been acquired through improper practices. Is I guess is what right. I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, those yeah those documents are part of the ten thousand pages of subpoena documents, and they were all okay. part of the they're all part of the right they're all part of the complaint, and the, that's all public record. Um, so there's no leak um, from any from either side at the moment. The only leak is the Citadel Twitter feed, uh, which is as a lawyer that baffles me, you have ongoing litigation and you have, you know, someone operating that Twitter feed, making comments about ongoing litigation, either the lawyers want to pull their hair out or, and they're being ignored or they're committing malpractice. I don't know which one it is. 
I would say what's happened is the PR folks have got in charge, are in charge of the Twitter feed and the lawyers are not being consulted because no lawyer that I know would ever consider that to be a good idea. Like those are not the actions of, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, last thing I want to ask is what if Citadel and Robinhood no longer exist as companies by the time this goes to court? Does it just sort of disappear? Uh, well, there's an old adage, you can't draw blood from a stone. Uh, and um, if, if, if a company is completely insolvent and there's no money, uh, there's no money to be won. Um, but listen, when it comes to bankrupt companies, and this is a whole other topic, but companies that go bankrupt in the process of litigation, um, like the Boy Scouts of America, for example, um, you know, there's a litigation against them in um, an MDL against the Boy Scouts for certain allegations that were made against them. Um, and basically, uh, they're a bankrupt. They filed for bankruptcy. But as part of the bankruptcy proceeding, some of the money uh, is being set aside to pay any potential settlement that might come from the case. So uh, there is a possibility for even an, an insolvent, quote unquote, insolvent company uh, during their bankruptcy proceeding for money to be set aside to pay for uh, litigation. Okay. Well, if anyone from Citadel is listening and uh, the company goes bankrupt and you're out of a job, grab anything you can and I am sure that you will be uh, rewarded. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a joke. Don't actually, you know, take that as serious advice. Anyone who's listening, that's not, you know, don't steal intellectual property, basically is what I'm saying. Um, Unless you want to. And it's your decision. Uh, but uh, anyway, I, I really, really want to thank you for your time, man. It's It's been really educational and, and yeah, a lot, a lot of fun to be able to chat to you and get get uh, a better understanding of, of what we can expect and what to look for for this case. So, so yeah, thank you very much, man. And do you want to point people towards anything before we, we wrap up here? Uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Josh. I had a great time. It was awesome. Um, as the litigation progresses, if you ever want to have me back on, I would love to talk about uh, the case in more detail. It's uh, a lot of fun. Um, and there's also a bunch of other legal topics out there now uh, that are really interesting. Uh, I saw someone was posting that uh, they were banned or blocked by Gary Gensler on their Twitter feed. Um, that's an interesting topic to talk about because there's a whole line of cases that say government officials and um, you know government agencies can't block you uh, on Twitter. So that's fascinating. Um, the Ripple lawsuit is also interesting uh, where they allowed the Ripple uh, um owners uh, to now um, act as a uh, file and amicus brief, which is really, really cool and interesting. And I think that's something to consider as this uh, short squeeze litigation uh, pres- you know, presses on. Uh, so you guys uh, can follow me, though, um, on Twitter at Lawyer of the Apes and also on YouTube um, at Lawyer of the Apes. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks very much, man. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. Don't forget to share this with uh, other apps. Um, Hopefully people have found it useful. Uh, So yeah, thanks everyone. And uh, yeah, see you soon.